0: Hello and welcome to The Connected Singer with Michael Hill and me, Julie Thompson. We're both singers and vocal coaches who love researching and learning new ways to keep in tip-top shape vocally and mentally.
1: We know that being a performer is a hugely rewarding but also demanding career for mind, body and soul. And we want to help you find the balance you need keep going on your musical journey. Each week we'll be speaking to performers, teachers and expert practitioners in a range of fields,
0: from psychology to sports science to recce, who will share their knowledge and experiences to provide you with a toolkit of ways to keep well, beat performance anxiety,
1: avoid burnout and get the most enjoyment out of the pursuit we all love.
0: Singing. Welcome back listeners to part two of our conversation with Lisa Papil. It's been such a delight so far to chat to her. So let's jump right in to hear more of her tips on performance anxiety and vocal technique. Enjoy. The connected singer. Well, actually, it's, it's kind of uh, it's a nice segue to a, a question that I wanted to talk to you about anyway. You talked about how, you know, it's quite a new experience and you seem quite confident, but not knowing how to improvise or it all being kind of very spontaneous can be quite, for some people, yeah, nerve-wracking and uh, can take over the body in, in many ways. So um, a lot of singers without that experience even when they're prepared, they do um, experience some kind of performance anxiety. Have you experienced that in, in a, like a very extreme uh, situation where you've not been able to perhaps function, even though you weren't prepared or um, you thought you were going to be able to, to deal with the live performance? Or have you worked with singers that are having these issues? And if
2: so, do you have any tools also. Yes. Well, to answer your first question, I've never had performance anxiety aside from just the, the you know, the butterflies and the excitement. Um, I've had nightmares that I will go on stage and, and I can't remember the words, which is always an issue for me. I prefer to have a, a teleprompter or some kind of, you know, a crutch there for memorizing my lyric. But But no, I've been on stage since I was six and I'm I love it. I feel very, very at home on stage. I love an audience. I love sharing my life, my big energy with, with, uh, with the audience. But yes, performance anxiety is, is quite common. And, uh, and I think the traditional approach of just prepare harder is, doesn't do the trick. So in 1990, I was asked to write an article about performance anxiety, and I knew nothing about it. I hadn't worked much with it at, up to that point with my students. And I called a, a famous psychiatrist in Beverly Hills who worked with a lot of celebrities. And I asked him what he did with his celebrity clients, because I had heard that Barbara Streisand had tremendous performance anxiety. So I thought, well, if she, she did, then I bet there are a lot of others that, that do as well. And he said, well, I used to use talk therapy, but frankly, it didn't really work. He said, I now use a tapping technique that is quite remarkable. He said, I have no understanding of how it works, uh, but if you're interested, just call this, this gentleman who lives in the Palm Springs area. So um, he gave me the, 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 the guy's name and it was uh, Roger Callahan and he was the originator of TFT or thought field therapy. And at the time thought field therapy was, I felt overly proprietary, meaning you pay 5,000 per week, for this training and learning their algorithms, as they call it. But you could also, or instead of, as in my case, buy a video for $40, Uh, a VHS video came in the mail about, you know, performance. It was called, I think, uh, uh, a five-minute phobia cure. That's how I remember it as being named the five-minute phobia cure. And it was this stunning, shocking, jaw-to-the-floor video of him working on live TV with people with serious anxiety problems. Not all performance-related, like Fear of Cats, Screaming at the the sight of, and not even real cat, just thinking it was a cat, and screaming on television, and I watched his his methodology, and and it just worked in, I would say less than eight minutes, sometimes less than five minutes, to seemingly cure these people so that they were just radiant and happy and glorious. So I I was doing a lot of workshops at the time on step, it was called stepping into the spotlight, or. what was the other one called keys to charisma and confidence. (laughs) And I had, so I had this, I had an opportunity the next day after watching this VHS tape to uh, work with a group of Catholics and an interesting group, they were all unhappy for some reason, they were depressed, they were angry. They were just like a support group. And I was sharing them with them, what I knew. And I, I said, I have this new method I'd like to try and that was the beginning. I was so blown away by how this worked for anger and uh, and anxiety. One guy, he was what was called a 10, the most upset possible. And in 30 seconds, I didn't even go through the whole protocol. In 30 seconds, he was a zero, meaning he was completely free of all anger. And I just, it, I still experience that. Occasionally, these results are... Uh, so stunning that I, I still don't believe it. And I refined it by, by um, adding a number of, of things to it, through um, trial and error, and now I teach it to other teachers because having students with performance anxiety or just not going to have a good lesson because they're, they're so stressed out that you can just see their eyes are moving in an odd way and you know they're not going to have a good lesson They're coming in and they're upset about something. And I want everyone to have a really powerful, joyful lesson. There's rarely a workshop that I do where I don't have an opportunity to share this. It's great for physical pain. Um, People invariably, there's somebody with a headache. And this gets rid of every headache I've ever tried, even migraines, sinus headaches. Even the pressure in the sinuses seems to, to go away. And it works great for performance anxiety. And I show people how to do it at the venue, in a bathroom stall. And also, I have some charisma exercises involving gestures and imagination. So you can go into the bathroom stall feeling kind of like Clark Kent. And then you burst out of the bathroom stall at the venue. And or, you know, wherever you're at. And where you need to be sparkling. And you just do these quick little tricks and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're shining and glowing and, and happy and memorable and enjoying your life. So powerful stuff. Many singing teachers are now learning it. I did a presentation at the voice foundation meeting. I'm on, I'm, I'm part of the voice foundation, which is the top voice professional voice medical association in, in uh, Philadelphia every year. And they actually let me do a presentation on tapping. So again, it's a combination. I use TFT, EFT, and EMDR. And it's. Uh, I don't understand how it works. And I don't need to. People don't have to believe it works. And I don't have to know what their problem is if they want to keep their privacy, whether it's because it's a group setting or they just, it's too private. I don't need to know. TFT um, is always my go-to start. But I encourage everyone to Uh, learn about it. And we need more gifted healers like that because a lot of the people who are doing it, even on YouTube, I don't think have the magic. They don't have the touch. They're just, they're mechanics. They're not not. truly healers. So for those that are completely
0: unaware of this world, don't know what tapping is or EFT or TFT, is there one, maybe a tool that you could perhaps share with us or something that you could share with us now that we could use perhaps or? Uh, well,
2: yes, sure. Um, one of the, If you're upset, particularly a recurring thought upset, that you, you, you're just, you can't stop thinking the same annoying thought over and over again. Uh, if you take your finger and you put it about 10 inches in front of your face, let's say take your index finger, pointing it up, and without moving your head, you move the finger left and right, or right and left, four times. So I'm just gonna do left, right. I'm wiggling my eyes without moving my head. I'll start over. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Close the eyes. Take a deep breath up the nose. Exhale through your mouth. Open your eyes. Look straight ahead. Think about the problem and see if there's still a bad feeling. If there is, you do it again. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Close eyes. Deep breath up the nose. Exhale through the mouth. Open the eyes. Look straight ahead. And you keep doing it until the, you can't even think of the problem or you just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't use my finger anymore. So I can do this at a stoplight. My hands are on the steering wheel. I, I like to do it with my lips closed and teeth together. I just, it seems to help me. Yeah. And I do it at the stoplight, just wiggling my eyes. Four times total, check in, keep doing it. And keep looking for the light to turn green. So that's a fantastic trick to cut the cord between a recurrent thought and emotional upset. The mm-hmm. second tip I would recommend is that there are two spots that you can tap that bring a great sense of peacefulness. And, uh, and I'll try to explain it as quickly and as best as I can. With the two hands, you take your... Fourth finger, your ring finger, and your middle finger, put them together, and find a spot on the bone directly beneath the pupil of the eye, which is a little closer in towards your nose than you may think. Not the cheekbone, but directly below the the little black pupil of the eye. And very lightly around this tempo, boom, 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 just tap that spot on the eye bone. And see if your breathing changes, if your heart rate goes down, if you start to feel a a sense of calmness throughout the body. Now, I don't talk that way. I don't try to feed. I don't try to hypnotize people by telling them what they should feel. I let them feel whatever they feel. I'm just for this, our purposes, I'm just mentioning. And you can do it as long as you like. I like to do the, the fingers boom 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 not too fast not too agitated and not too hard don't don't bang don't create a bruise the second spot that is a a favorite is the collarbone spot so if you go up to your collarbone and oh so about i would say three inches from the center from the breastbone find the collarbone and put your your you can put three fingers that's your index finger your second finger your third finger and your fourth finger, and find the little divot beneath the collarbone and just lightly tap that. Some people prefer this spot and some people prefer the eye bone spot. There was one time when I did have a little performance anxiety, now that I think about it. I was performing with the Pasadena Symphony uh, and I had never performed with a professional symphony before. It was a, a classical piece. And I felt my, my heart rate was a little high. So I didn't want that to eat into my air. So I just sat backstage and I just tapped the collarbone spot. And in short order, felt my heart rate go down. I felt extremely calm, went out there and uh, Did the show. had no problems with my air. Oh, fantastic. So well, those are my two little spots that I, I really like. And they're easy for people to do.
1: I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? As so, well, you know, the proof is in the, the pudding. Try things out and see if they work. There's a, there's a lot to do with acupressure. You know, the, um, uh, the the West is now looking at and quantifying or analyzing stuff that.
2: Yes, it's it's always been, been this. These three things have always been held in low esteem by the medical community as as voodoo as pseudoscience, but I'm, I'm really glad there's starting to be some real, um, real research done on it. I've worked on many hundreds of people and it never ceases to astound me how powerful and simple these tools are. The hardest thing is for people to remember that it's available to them. I think we have sometimes an emotional uh, benefit out of drama. Uh, And I don't think it's just artists who are like this. I think we can get into our drama, our upset, and it's kind of like, ooh, I'm really hyped up. There's a kind of adrenaline that gets linked with drama. And not everybody's ready for a complete release from their past trauma. So there are a few people that are are not ready for um, this kind of healing. But most people are. They're desperate and they're just so happy and giggly. I've seen people jump up and down like, I can't believe it. It's quite a fascinating time, actually, because as you say, for
0: a long time, it's been very voodoo and and very sort of seen as, as, yeah, as it's not scientific. It's very difficult to grasp. As you say, you've had a lot of uh, experiences and proof that this works through your own experiences and with people that you work with. So fascinating. I'm I'm
2: fine with calling it magic. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think there are some things. That it's okay for my, you know, because in terms of voice research, I want to know every little thing. I want to know the truth.
0: The connected signal quick
2: note to remind you
0: that there are links to more information on topics Lisa has discussed with us in the podcast info below. We find all topics by all our guests fascinating and love to explore but it is always worth remembering that we are all on our individual vocal technique journey so we can always decide to take what works for us and leave anything behind that doesn't. So without further ado let's dive straight back into the conversation with
2: Lisa to learn more. Oh, you know, which leads me to another thought I'd like to share with you, because in, in modern singing, there's this, this uh, movement, and I'd be curious to know what your opinion is on this. There's this movement toward evidence-based singing pedagogy, just as there's evidence-based medicine or psychology, and I don't feel that way, because my job my job is to, to help people achieve their dreams, whether as best I can, vocally, emotionally, charisma, whatever it is that I know that I can be of, of, of service and help to people's sense of joy in life. And obviously to be the best singer they can be. So I decided a while ago that just because I have an, uh, an interest in in voice science, I, that's not how I'm going to teach. If you are working in a university setting, if you are working with, with someone who has an interest in, in science, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting exposure. I don't believe it's a way to train singers. And I, one of the reasons is that our visual part of our brain is, is much bigger than our auditory part of our brain and that singers need to learn to listen and listen and listen and to improve their hearing, to improve their ability to listen and discern. And that when you start looking at a picture, uh, it's, it's pretty engrossing and you can actually, I just as my, my personal belief, I don't know if there's any foundation in it, that, that it diminishes your ability to uh, increase auditory acumen, which I think is much more important and I've heard several people who were trained to sing using these visual methods, and they're not very good singers, technically or emotionally. It seems that that visual part just takes over and becomes sort of a, a, a fun like a video game rather than developing artistry and, and auditory. So I'm not going to teach science unless it's uh, appropriate to the student, appropriate to what they need at that time. My goal is not to have students stay with me for 20 years and move in like in the, you know, in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't mind if they want to stay with me for 20, 20 plus years, but my goal is to, uh, to be efficient and only talk about the, I mean, I'm sure with some of my more nerdy geek, voice geek students, I might pull out something just so they go, wow. You know, that's so interesting, but that doesn't, not going to necessarily help them be better singers. Well, it's, it's funny, actually,
0: that you should bring this up. I had a singing lesson today and I was talking to Michael just before before this interview uh, discussion more chat, um, that I felt I'd given too much information to one of my students, a very new student, first time student and very knowledgeable. Also, someone that was a teacher, had done so many other Uh, used other pedagogy, had so many different, worked with so many different vocal coaches, some in the States, or quite a few big names, actually, all the the ones that you hear anyway, uh, quite prominently. And uh, it's it's in the pop uh, genre. And so I felt a little bit of pressure to actually share too much knowledge to, to sort of explain why I was doing things rather than just giving some tools that were appropriate to what he was trying, he was trying to achieve and not saying anything and just allowing him to enjoy it and feed back and, and see where we, we progress from there. And, and it was only afterwards when I, I finished the lesson that I sat back and I thought, oh, I don't think we got the best out of that lesson. And I think, and note to self, I spoke too much <laughs> and I shared too much. And uh, for this guy, he was also a logical person. So, you know, it was like two logicians together and, and not enough just doing and letting the creativity, the artistry and the emotion and, and all that kind of be allowed to come out. I'll be interesting to see what happens in the
2: second lesson and I will try to hold back. I think it's about trying to develop all our senses because I use a lot of feel and that really helped me be consistent and and create sounds consistently rather than sort of hit or miss like, oh, I got that. Can I get it again? And so by learning to feel my vocal cords, uh, now I know we don't have a lot of sensory neurons there. We do have sensory neurons within the vocalis. Muscle, so we can feel thickening and and, and thinning, but there there are feelings that whether my brain is filling them in, but by trying to feel uh, things right in my neck area, um, also how different muscles work in terms of, you know, like the closure we talked about and what pressed feels like versus hard closure versus clean closure, by feeling that I can make that happen. Right then, right there, consistently. Excuse me, and I can, and I can avoid problems, um, or I can have a student avoid problems, like pressing because they think pressing and belting go together. Yeah. Uh, and I've had a number of professional students who always thought belting means pressing their vocal cords together, and and being loud and being resonant because that's what t- traditional definition of belting was. And I'm, you know, I put myself out on a limb to. To suggest uh, for uh, some years now that, that belting is often loud, it's often resonant, but it doesn't have to be, and that it can be many different things. It's just not head voice. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, and I think it's starting to to take hold uh, and as as a, you know as a definition. Uh, we'll always have the, the term "oh, she really belted it out," which infers is that it was loud. Uh, and impressive and stunning. And and a lot of people don't realize where the word belting comes from because it obviously has nothing to do with belts. Do you know where (laughs) it comes from? You know what, I don't actually. Michael, you probably do, don't you? Uh,
1: I am not entirely sure,
0: that's what I think in
2: In the 19, early part of the 20th century, belting was used as a boxing term he really belted him one meaning you you punch somebody in the face yeah and that's around the time of a bethel merman hitting the stage not classically trained there was legit meaning legitimately trained classically trained and then there was this belter who just stands there and just yells pretty much and thrills everybody so it came from giving giving them a belt, giving them a jolt. Right. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I it's thought that was because, you know, uh, that was interesting.
1: In in uh, in Scotland, if you were to say "yeah, belter," it means something is like amazing. Oh,
2: so, wow. uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: So well, uh, one of
2: the things about about loud, resonant belting that I've discovered is that if you're halfway good at it, you can actually thrill. Jaded classical singing teachers, and I've I've seen this where I was at a conference, broke through their cri- their critical minds. Their, it, you know, that's not singing. It just built, burst through all of those walls and just hit them in the in the gut, and just, and I was just like that. I will never forget. So that's the power of of loud resonant belting. Uh, I just think if it's always loud and always resonant, you just don't have enough colors to to really Mm. act. And in musical theater, there's this idea to me that I don't want to have my students do roles because of their technical limitations. I want them to be able to to have mastered, I teach three different kinds of head voice depending on the style. if you do the wrong one, it doesn't sound quite right. So you want to get the the one that's, you know, there's the operatic one. There's the one that's for like an operetta uh, s- style. And then there's the one that's used for legit, more like a Julie Andrews. So actually, I'll just be more specific. So the opera one, pick any uh, opera uh, female opera singer. Ah, 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 ah. That's what a very deep, loud fish, fish face sound. And then there's the operetta one. We could say Audra McDonald or Sarah Brightman. Think of me. Think of me fondly. That's a very different sound. And the sensation is different. And then the the forward one we could use for pop and jazz and and Julie Andrews kind of musical theater. My hills are alive with the sound of music. So three different kinds of head voice just for just getting the style right. So yeah. I'm digressing, but, um, I just want to be specific without, without losing the the sheer fun of, of learning. But I, if you're, if you're not using the right head voice, uh, you're, and it's easy to, to do the right one, you know, especially if you're going from classical to pop and so many, because I, because of my classical background, I think a lot of the classical teachers feel comfortable with me. I know how they think. I'm not going to put them down saying, You're, everything you know is useless and irrelevant. You know, and I think some of the more modern pop teachers can make classically trained people feel almost worse than they already do <laughs> i think a lot of them feel like they're just faking it and I, I my students come in and i don't even know what they're doing and they're so good and I, I i i do no harm and this is i've had these classical teachers say this to me and they're feeling like frauds and they come to my workshops and sometimes cry though there's less there's less crying now in my workshops But 20 years ago, there was a crying because they felt like, I don't know how to make these sounds. So I said, I didn't either. And I I got it. I got this. Just do this. And one of the things I have not talked about that I think I've got to take the time and thank you for allowing me so much time to share my thoughts with you today is support. And I'm not going to go give a 15 minute lesson on support. I just want to say that To me, support is one of the the missing ingredients in many vocal pedagogies as it was for all my experiences since the early 1960s. And that is that it's often confused with breathing or breath control. And I separate all of that. I separate breathing as air coming in. Breath control is the ability to me of holding long phrases. And support is what pressurizes the airstream to make the vocal folds vibrate and to provide the vocal folds with what they need so they give you what your brain wants and so big part of controlling a straight tone and vibrato and also register control is and I mean almost everything even pitch is based on having a really precise support method i've experimented with uh, every support method that's ever crossed my path and i i know they all the different ones, they must work for somebody. I was looking for something that worked for everybody for all styles, kind of what we can say precise, but generic. I've had teachers who said support uh, is not important. Support is evil. If, if a teacher talks about support, you better run. I don't know where that very famous singing teacher uh, developed such an aversion to the, even the topic of support. Wow. But I, it totally changed my life as a singer when I found a way that I can teach that I do, I don't think about it anymore. It just works. Um, it makes everything work. So I don't have to warm up or very little warming up. I check my voice, but I don't really warm up. It just works. Kind of like you get in a car, you put the key in you, the car start. If it was a good car. It just starts. So, um, and I think it's the missing ingredient and the In a nutshell, the way I teach it is the chest stays up all the time. For breathing, it stays still and up. And for support, it stays still and up. It does not drop. I take my rib cage. That's nipple height, not the lower part of the ribs. And the thumbs go in the back, fingers in the front. And I widen my rib cage, side and back particularly, um, wider than normal to singer's ribs. And then I maintain that width as I sing. I do not let the ribs collapse as a part of singing. Uh, the third job of support, what I think is the most important job, is that there's a, a spot directly below the upper belly, uh, directly below the sternum. It's part of the upper belly. This is not the diaphragm, uh, but it is the upper belly. And there's a spot usually just below the sternum. In my case my upper belly magic spot is a, a, another inch or so lower. And we're looking for the spot that goes out the most when you make a loud sh sound like this. And it goes out for the sound and stays out like a spongy wall for the entire phrase. And then when you breathe, it relaxes inwards and then you firm it out. Not hard as a rock, but usually more than a singer thinks they need just that action Solves a lot of tension problems, compensatory tension, such as neck, front, side, back of the neck, jaw tension, head tweaking, pulling up, twisting, tongue tension. No need to spend weeks, as I have was led through, on compensatory tension relaxation exercises. Just make sure the support works and you're halfway there, if not fully there, to avoiding any local compensatory tension. Um, lower, the way I teach the lower belly is that, that the thumb goes on top of the navel and hand goes below that. I keep my fingers together so they're not splayed out and that's the lower belly. You start with it soft and in singing, it gradually goes straight in for singing, relax it completely for breathing. So it moves differently than the upper belly. The upper belly goes out like a wall for the entire phrase, relaxes for breathing And the lower belly gradually clutches in for singing, relaxes for breathing. Also, the lower belly is the high note helper. If anyone has a high note issue, which is one of the most common problems, I recommend that they pull the lower belly in just a little bit more. And that makes the high note easy. I have a whole list of high note singing, high note tips, but that's one of them uh, related to support. There are other support things you can do, including certain waist actions or inner thigh, or what feels like you're sticking your lats out, but beneath the, and then there's the head pushback where you're, you're uh, stiffening the, uh, the, the the muscles along the spine. Those are kind of ancillary support tricks, but the four main ones are chest up, ribs out, upper belly magic spot out, lower belly in. And I show this to everybody. I don't care who they are, how professional it is, it solves problems right away with or without vocal exercises. So thank you for letting me share that. It took me about 30 years to figure out that simple method. And even I'm surprised that it works as well as it does for as many people as it does. And if it's just clear and precise, you can like move on. Plus I like to have their hands on the bellies. So they're actually monitoring the bellies because it means three fingers on the upper belly magic spot one hand on the lower belly, because I found that the bellies lie to us. They tell us they're working kind of like (laughs) boys, teenage boys who lie and say they took the trash out and then they didn't take the trash out. The bellies are like that too. They'll, they'll tend to not work enough. Again, I'm not trying to discredit other support methods, but this one has proven to work for all styles, all ages, both sexes. Um, and so otherwise I would have fixed it, but I I just, it just works and people can hear the steady power, solid sound with, without vocal fold pressing and ease and consistency. And that's what leads to confidence. And that's one of the biggest things that we provide our students with is, is we want them to be confident and not be, um, you know, peeing in their pants because they, they love to sing, but they're too afraid to do it. Yeah. If you feel that your voice is under control and it won't embarrass you, that's some, and then that's what support provides.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, brilliant. I think that it's the uh, the great thing about all this as well is that, as well researched as as you are as a uh, voice pedagogue and and researcher and uh, teacher, I think uh, many of these things that we've talked about the important thing is to just go and try things out. And it's practical things that they can, they can try. This moves this way, this moves that way, or, or for example, the, the performance anxiety tricks. It's, and sometimes I suppose we have to let go of the, the urge to analyze everything and just use what uh, what is working. I had a, a conversation That's- with a colleague the other day and she's, she's a researcher and she said, I know everything. I know what's moving, I know what's doing what, I know this muscle does this and this does this. And she said, but where's the magic now? I just want to enjoy singing again. <laughs> and that's the important thing
2: wow. at the end of the day. What a revelation to hear that. I mean, not just for her, but for, for me to hear that. I just and we can't lose sight of of the emotional benefits of of singing and uh, that we can't lose sight that no matter how interested we are in all of those, those little details, my, my commitment, my mission is, my calling is to help people uh, feel that they can have that level of, of consistent magic. And whenever they want to, you know, I'm, they don't have to be singing all the time in the house, but when they want to have that experience, that it's, it's there for them as, as second nature. And also, I find that by knowing exactly what to do, that being task oriented becomes second nature a lot faster than if you have only this vague idea of, of what you're supposed to do. And I want second nature so you can get on to the, I'm just singing uh, for my own pleasure. And I never put that down. I never make that seem less important. In fact, I I encourage people to sing for pleasure because once you start worrying about how you're going to pay the rent with your singing, it can put a layer of, of fear, negativity, and the real world onto something that should be very precious. And I also tell people sometimes that No one has ever had your voice ever in the history of of the planet. Has anyone had your voice? And when you leave the planet, no one ever will again. And so to see how good you can make it and to be able to do things with your voice, you never even thought possible. Like, I never thought I could belt a high C uh, with comfort and consistency. Never thought that would happen. I didn't know that was even humanly possible. Or to do a head voice sound on my low A. I have a, uh, I'm a mezzo, I'm not actually a soprano. I have an A2. And to, you know, fool around and find that I can do a head voice. And so I'm researching that now. I have some really cool high-speed video now of, uh, not the low, I, I have it of the C, the C3, and C4 and C5 and C6, uh, one in, in M1 and one in M2. and. Uh, I'm very excited to, with my, my Czech Republic colleagues to codify more specifically what's going on because I, I'm, that's my real pet project is vocal registers. Feel the register in the vocal folds regardless of where you feel vibration. A lot of singers don't realize that where you feel vibration is related to really two things, whether you mean, I'm talking about vibration in your chest or vibration in your head. The two elements that create vibration, in, in my experience, is pitch. The lower the pitch, the more low you feel vibration. The higher the pitch, the higher you feel vibration, regardless of the register. So low head voice, I feel my chest vibrate. High chest voice, I might feel vibration in my head. Also, as the cord thins or thickens, you can, it will shift the verticality of, of sensation of vibration. So the thicker the chord, the, the lower the vibrate, feeling of vibration, and the thinner the chord, the higher. So uh, unfortunately, because of classical singing being the, the, the root of all that we've taken from there, I needed to sort of erase all of that, everything I'd ever heard, and realized I can do any note of my range on either M1 or M2. And that was a revelation, and that happened a couple of years ago. So I, ha- it's, and I can be louder or softer on most of those notes also. So I encourage people to experiment and just play with the eye, just play that you're in one or the other and it's not based on where you feel vibration and you'll have much more control of what you, you can make, you can make uh, as part of your artistry now is not this vertical model of chest voice on the bottom, some kind of mixing of the two and then head voice on top. That's how I was trained. I never quite got it, didn't know how to mix, didn't know how to blend. It was all very hit or miss. So this new model is based on uh, the idea of one or the other, feelable in the vocal folds. So that's a part of what I call the voice works method. Posture, support, breathing for singing, uh, knowing your absolute range, explaining resonance clearly. What is resonance? What is ring? What is brightness? um, What is um, ring brightness and nasality? Larynx heights, five different larynx positions. So if I ask someone for a number four, it's because I want them to, to lower their voice box. Um, pharyngeal widths, we spoke about earlier. That's another kind of resonant controller. Um, different mouth shapes for different styles, just shortcuts to getting to the style. Laryngeal lean, uh, vibrato. So all of these things I try to explain... If they want the big big picture, just kind of the 12 or 13 or 14 basic skills that I think every singer should know about.
0: Well, that has actually just completely, that's rounded off the interview superbly, (laughs) because that was what we were going to ask you. (laughs) What should every singer know? The one thing... So thank you. Goodness me, we could talk for hours and hours and um, you have shared so many wonderful things um, no, for you. us. So thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure. And I think there's also been a running theme through all of this as well, is that keep an open mind, keep learning, keep growing, keep developing. You know, life is short enough. So while you're on the planet, <laughs> why not keep moving and and, and exploring? So that's that's. For me, one of the greatest things and, and so much detail as well um, involved in, in the discussion, which I
2: am going to have to listen to lots of times, I think. <laughs> oh, I have, I have many, many videos, I, many things I, I'm happy to send you uh, as, my, as my gift. Uh, that just, just fun stuff that, uh, that works. That's, that's keeping it. Yep. Keeping the, I, I feel like I'm in the happiness business. This is my postscript. Yeah. I think we, uh, as singing teachers, we, we, th- we think of ourselves as, you know, we're providing vocal instruction, but really we're in the happiness business. It masquerades as vocal instruction. So <laughs> I think that's why singing teachers who, who either don't sing, can't sing, or don't show any joy in it. Uh, it it's not gonna, it's not, it's, it's not gonna resonate. Again, life's too short. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much again, Julie and Michael, for allowing me to spend all this time with you. And I, I look forward to many more conversations privately on all these and many more topics. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to have a part two, part three, part four. (laughs) Next time, wine. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Hour Vocal Pedagogy. Excellent.
0: Thanks to all of you out there for listening to our podcast today. All information relating to our podcast and guests can be found on our Facebook page, The Connected Singer. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you have enjoyed this episode's podcast, we would really appreciate your support by subscribing and helping us to continue in creating a connected community of listeners and specialists connected to the field of singing and beyond. Take care of yourselves and each other, and see you next time.